Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This is a special bonus report on Season 7 of Jury Duty as we cover the retrial of Danny Masterson on sexual assault charges. On today's episode, we present Part 1 of our conversation with blogger Tony Ortega about his coverage of the second week of witness testimony in the Masterson retrial. That's all coming up right after the break. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Before we begin this episode, a quick word about another Crime Story Media production. October 2014. Was David Martinez responsible for killing Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond? That's at the heart of Night Raid, a new podcast from Crime Story Media. Subscribe or follow wherever you get this podcast. And now, Jury Duty continues its coverage of Danny Masterson's retrial with another in our series of conversations between Jury Duty creator Carrie Anthullis and Underground Bunker blogger Tony Ortega. On today's episode, we present part one of a conversation between Carrie and Tony about week two of witness testimonies in the Masterson retrial. And here is that chat. Tony Ortega, thank you again for joining us. You bet, Carrie. Glad to be here. So on day six of the trial, which was this past Monday, Jane Doe 1 was scheduled to resume her testimony, which she began the previous Friday. But the day actually began with an issue related to a person named Vicky Podbereski and the presentation of that issue to the jury. Can you explain what that was all about? Yeah, sure. Vicki Podbereski is a well-known, longtime attorney for Scientology. She's handled various cases. Her name came up in the previous trial because an LAPD detective testified that they were having a hard time reaching some of the witnesses because you know she was representing them. So during the first trial, she had colleagues coming to the trial to keep an eye on it. And I've always said there's nothing surprising about that. These women who are the victims in this criminal trial are also suing Masterson and the Church of Scientology civilly. So it's not surprising that Scientology would send an attorney to keep an eye on it. But Vicky's well known among you know those of us that keep an eye on Scientology. So she came in on Friday, the Friday before. So Monday morning, the DA raised the issue that during Friday's testimony, Jane Doe 1 believed that Vicki Probreski had reacted to something she said by flipping her hair and making a like a dead-eye look. And it was something that unnerved her. She believed that she was sending some kind of an intimidation message to Jane Doe 1. And she believed that it had kind of thrown her off for some time. And they wanted to say something so that the jury understood if they saw Jane Doe 1 not answering very well that this could explain that. The defense was totally against it, but Judge Olmedo allowed it. And so the Monday session began with the DA asking Jane Doe One about that so she could explain how she had felt, you know, disrupted by that. So then 
Jane Doe 1 resumed her testimony, and she finally got to describe the April 2003 incident between her and Danny Masterson. Would you give us the essence of her testimony and a quick warning to our listeners that it's pretty graphic and disturbing stuff? Sure. So uh, unlike the witness before her, Jane Doe 3, Jane Doe 1 was not in a relationship with Danny Masterson. She was an acquaintance. She was a friend. They had friends in common and they'd known each other for quite a while. And she had first described this April 2002 incident where they had had a sexual encounter. And it was, you know, she's kind of changed her mind over the years, whether it was consensual or not. But on April 2003, six months later, she testified that she ended up at his house after a sort of strange set of circumstances where she was looking for some keys to a house. She wasn't there to go to the party, but she ended up there. There was a party going on. Masterson handed her a drink and she describes it as a red fruity drink. And then about, I don't know, 15 minutes later, he came up to her and said, you're going in the jacuzzi. And she said there was kind of a rule in his house that if Masterson told you that, you had a few seconds to drop whatever you had on you that you didn't want to go in the water and then you were going in whether you wanted to or not. And so when he started to drag her through the house, she suddenly realized that something was wrong after consuming that drink. She had no strength. She couldn't resist him. And he ended up dragging her through the house into the backyard and tossing her into the jacuzzi. She managed to get off some of her things on the way to it. This is how she described it. She came out of the jacuzzi. She was feeling really ill at that time. She was having a hard time seeing things, uh, which is very consistent with what some of the other women have said after these drinks that Madison gave them. He then took her up to his bathroom to help her throw up, put his fingers down her throat. She threw up not just on a toilet, but all over herself. So he then put her in the shower, took her clothes off, put her in a shower, and she describes coming in and out of consciousness and coming to, she's in the shower and he's soaping up her breasts. And that's when she kind of realizes what's going on. She tries to fight him off. And then he takes her into the bedroom. And she just describes, again, losing consciousness, coming back to consciousness. And, you know, he's on top of her. He's raping her. She's trying to push him off. At one point, she's able to grab a pillow, put it towards his face, and she said he then took that pillow, jammed it down on her face, and held it there so she couldn't breathe, and she passed out. She also described at one point during the assault that she had reached for a dresser next to the bed, and he reached in before she could and pulled out a handgun. And she's kind of described, it's hard to describe exactly where she, he was pointing it. It was more like brandishing it. There was also some sound going on outside their door, and she thought he might be pulling the gun for that reason. But he said something to her like, you know, keep your mouth shut. And they brought out in testimony that, yes, this was a sort of like, look, I've got a gun on my hands. You need to be quiet. He put the gun away. She then reached for the drawer and he slammed it on her hand. And that's the result she said was the, the worst injury she received was to her hand. And this time in this trial, this didn't happen last time, Carrie, they specifically asked her, when you were reaching for the drawer, were you reaching for the gun? And she said, yes, I wanted to kill him. So that's the first time she said that, that I can remember. And he slammed the door on her hand, and then she remembers passing out again, and then waking up later and crawling to his closet, and ultimately gets up the next day and leaves. But, you know, a, a brutal assault where she's trying to fight him off, and he's just on top of her raping her, and uh, it's, it's brutal stuff, Gary. Who handled the questioning for the prosecution? With Jane Doe 1, it was Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller. 
And were there differences in her testimony from the first trial? You know, I think in all three women, they're going into more detail, it seems like this time. I think part of it is the reins have been taken off as far as Scientology is concerned. So, you know, all three women have talked more about Scientology than they did the first time. And just, I think, especially with Jane Doe 1, they went into such meticulous detail because this is a woman who's describing, you know, what appears to be the effects of being drunk. And so she's in and out of consciousness. She's having a hard time seeing. So the things she does remember, she's doing her best to describe in absolute minute detail. And I think they went into more of that this time. I think they're trying to impress on the jury that this really happened. It's still vivid in her memory more than 20 years later. From your reporting, I gathered that they also went into the circumstances with Jane Doe One's family, who were longtime members of the Church of Scientology. And then they also went into the preparation of a report to Scientology in the aftermath of the incident. Can you talk about those things a bit? Yeah, definitely. We got more detail this time about her parents who were wealthy donors in Scientology. And she talked about how after this thing occurred and they were trying to decide what to do about it, she talked about her mother would fire off letters directly to David Miscavige, the leader of the Church of Scientology. Now, unfortunately, we're not going to get to see those letters because her mother is still an ardent Scientologist and the prosecution just cannot afford to put her on the stand. So we won't be seeing those documents. Some of that material did come out. I would definitely want to point out Amy Zimmerman did a fantastic story for the Daily Beast in 2019 where she got to see some of these documents and wrote about them. It's really a shame that they're not coming into the case because it's really interesting that a Scientologist donor was complaining to David Miscavige about many of the same things we're hearing in the trial. But we heard a little bit about that and that her father was an important donor in the church and also that she immediately went to the Church of Scientology. And how they reacted, Carrie, was really pretty amazing. I mean, we also heard Jane Doe 3, they put you through an ethics program. They make victims believe that anything bad that happens to them is their own fault. And in Jane Doe 1's particular case, they charged her thousands of dollars to do past life counseling to see maybe she had raped people in her past lives that would cause her to be a victim in this life. And she did refer to that this time. She did not the first trial. And there was also some testimony from Jane Doe 1 about what happened after she went to the LAPD. Can you talk about that? Right. So like with Jane Doe 3, what she heard from Scientology was you can't take this to the police. It's against Scientology's rules. And and if you violate that particular rule, it's among the most serious. It's called a high crime. You will be expelled. And in, it's, in Scientology, it's called declared a suppressive person. And if you're declared an SP, all other Scientologists in good standing have to cut off all contact with you even her own parents, you know, and she had a a young daughter at that time and she couldn't imagine something like that. So they were telling her, you cannot go to the LAPD. But in June, 2004, she decided she had to go and she went to the LAPD defying Scientology. And she went to this Hollywood division at 10 o'clock at night and talked to a desk sergeant there who's now a detective. His name is Schlegel. And last time on the first trial, the DA kind of tiptoed around the idea that maybe this Schlegel didn't do such a good job. This time they're going right after it. Okay, Jane Doe 1 was describing at one point, I guess because she was referring to Scientology terms, he wrote in his report that she wasn't even speaking English. 
And also that he, instead of filing a rape report, he filed an injury report, which to this day, I've never heard the LAPD explain that. It doesn't make any sense. So this time they were very much more going after Schlegel and how he had taken that report. But that was pretty brave of her to defy Scientology and go to the LAPD. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We resume the conversation between Carrie Antholis and Tony Ortega with Carrie's question to Tony about the defense cross-examination of Jane Doe 1. The defense began their cross-examination of Jane Doe 1 at the end of day six, and it was handled by Philip Cohen. But we'll get into that when we move on to day seven. I just want to talk for a moment about some issues that came up at the end of day six with a Methodist minister who was in the gallery and who was part of, as you called it, something called the Stand League. And there was also a confrontation involving that minister that some of the jurors heard, which led to a mistrial motion by the defense. Could you unpack all of that for us? Yeah, I saw him in the morning. He's this reverend minister named Skip LaRue, and he was with a woman. Now, the woman is really with the Stand League. What the Stand League is, Carrie, Scientology started it several years ago. It's a fake grassroots organization. It's, you know, Scientology for years has operated these attack websites, and they actually created this organization, the Stand League, and it's supposed to be these rank-and-file Scientologists blogging about things, but it's really just another form of attack. It's constantly smearing Leah Remini, Mike Rick, me, any journalist who writes about Scientology ends up getting attacked by the Stand League and various Twitter accounts that are associated with it. So the Stand League sent this woman, Ava Mahoney, down to sit in the back row and press row. She got a press badge. And then this uh, minister who was with her was in a row in front of her in the audience. The DA raised an issue about his presence the Judge Olmedo asked him who he was, said he was a Methodist minister, asked him if he was affiliated with Scientology, and he said no. Well, that's a fib. I mean, he's not a Scientologist. He may believe he's not technically associated with Scientology, but he goes and speaks at these Scientology interfaith events, and he even testified to Congress for Scientology. So he's clearly, you know, affiliated with Scientology. But on the other hand, they just sat there quietly. They didn't do anything. They weren't intimidating anybody. At the lunch break, I heard it. I was in the hallway and there was yelling at the woman, not the minister, at the woman, the Stan League. I heard some really loud yelling. All the, It was shocking. The whole hallway was like, oh my God. And the words I heard were, you write propaganda for the fucking Church of Scientology. Well, this was unfortunately done in front of some jurors. And that's really the issue. I, I wish people would just ignore the Stan League. They're totally inconsequential. But when we came back, the DA raised this with the judge and then the defense chimed in and then defense attorney Philip Cohen called for a mistrial based on it. The judge quizzed the jury. Five jurors had heard something. She sent the whole jury out and then spent some time. She brought each of those five jurors in 
quiz them. What have you heard? Four of them really were a little confused about what they'd heard. They hadn't heard much. The fifth one was interesting. She's an alternate. And she she said those pretty much the same words that I heard. Very good, well observed, observed what had happened. And then it turns out she was a court reporter. So no, no wonder she was good at reporting what had happened. But the judge said she was worried about her lease. She knows that she'll be impartial. So the judge decided that, that none of them had heard enough to really cause a mistrial. And we kept going. But it was a reminder. You know, you got to watch what you do in the hallways and you've got to be careful that there's jurors around. You know, I, again, I just wish people would ignore the Stanley because it's always sliming Leah and me and Mike and other people. But on the other hand, their social media feeds have like followers in the tens, Carrie. So it's just like the, really the best thing is to ignore them. At the beginning of day seven, the Vicky Podbreski issue that came up at the beginning of day six was again raised, but this time by the defense attorney, Philip Cohen. Can you tell us what that was all about? Yeah. So on Monday, they went through that testimony where the DA asked Jane Doe one about the incident. And she said she had seen Vicky Pabareski and she told the DAs about this hair flip. But then it turned out there was a question about the timing. And it turned out that that Friday when Pabareski was in the courtroom, the only thing Jane Doe one had said to the DAs that day was, I don't like her being in the courtroom. And it wasn't until Sunday that she texted them explaining the whole hair flip thing. So Cohen really didn't like that the jury might have got the idea that the DAs had been told on Friday about the hair flip and everything. He was trying to raise questions about what Jane Doe One had seen, what she was really doing. You know, I don't, they ended up with a stipulation to the jury where the DA admitted that she all she said on Friday was that she didn't like Vicky being there and that she told them about the hair flip later. I, I don't know that that necessarily undercuts what she was saying. I, I think Judge Olmedo is just sensitive to what these victims feel about who's in the audience. In fact, it happened again later, but we'll get to that. But, you know, Cohen was doing his best to make it look like, you know, maybe Jane Doe One wasn't being entirely factual about how it had come out. But I think what she said was basically accurate. As I mentioned earlier, the end of day six and all of day seven was taken up by the cross-examination of Jane Doe One. You reported that Philip Cohen ran into some issues with Judge Almedo and how he tried to present material from the previous trial. That came up during opening statements as well. Can you explain what it was all about in the context of Jane Doe One? Yeah, he, he really wants to exploit the things that Jane Doe One details she might be bringing in now that she didn't before. And I don't know, as somebody that's in the audience trying to understand what happened, if they remember some more details, it seems like it's helpful. But of course, the defense wants to present that as something nefarious. And so he's going back over trying to bring up with her what she said the previous time. But that's a little tricky because Judge Olmedo doesn't want him to just quote previous testimony. So he was interrupted numerous times. But I think that a bigger issue for Judge Olmedo was that what Cohen will do is Jane Doe One might give us a new detail we haven't heard before about something that happened, especially in September 2002 issue, she brought up some new things. And so then he'll ask, well, in 2017, when you talked to Detective Reyes, you didn't tell her that, did you? No. You didn't tell Mr. Mueller about that, did you? No. You didn't tell Mr. Detective Vargas about that? No. And that annoys Judge Olmedo. It's like, 
why don't you just say you didn't tell anybody else about it? Why do we have to have that? You know, obviously it's for effect. I mean, obviously, you know, Cohen's trying to drive that point home. That something that she's saying now, she didn't say previously to the police. But that does get on Omedo's nerves. She's really cognizant of, of fairness to both sides, but also moving things along. So she was, you know, and then he was asking some things, Carrie, like he wanted to know in the April 2003 incident, the charged incident, when Danny threw her into the jacuzzi. What was the water temperature? And I remember she, at, uh, during her direct testimony, she just remembered that it was basically warm, but it was a cold night. And it's the kind of thing, you know, when you get out, you're going to be cold. And as soon as she said that, I think everybody can relate to that fine. But then he kept quizzing her about the water temperature. Like there's some readout somewhere that shows it was 85 and she thought it was only 80 or something. It didn't make any sense why he spent so much time on it. You keep waiting for him to say something that impeaches her. I don't know. Maybe he's going to say something in closing. But it did feel like he was wasting time. And that gets on Judge Olmedo's nerves. Were there any other aspects of Philip Cohen's cross-examination of Jane Doe 1 that are particularly memorable? And were there any noticeable differences in Jane Doe 1's response to Cohen's cross from the first trial? I think uh, it was largely similar because the things he's really focusing on are the bruises and the photos that after this happened with Danny in April 2003, she immediately got on a plane within a few hours and, and flew to Florida with her family. She was there for several days with her mother, father, cousins, other people. And there are a couple of photographs that exist of her at that time and she's in a bikini so you can see a lot of her skin and you just don't see bruising on those photos i mean maybe a couple but she had testified that they were all over that's where he's trying to really hammer her is he's putting up the photo keeps asking her about the how many bruises she had how kind of pain she was in. And that I think that was the main thing he wanted to impeach her on. And then also, the I don't think the gun's as big a deal this time as it is last time, but he did ask about it quite a bit. That She testified that at one point, Danny had pulled this gun out of his side table there by the bed and then put it away. And then, but both of the first two LAPD detectives she talked to in 2004 say nothing about a gun in the reports. So he's really kind of hammering her on those. Those are the things he focused on in the first trial. And they're the things he focused on this time as well. And with that, we conclude this bonus episode of Jury Duty, the retrial of Danny Masterson. Please join our next installment for part two of this conversation between Tony Ortega and Carrie Antholis about week two of the Masterson retrial. And starting later this month, look for season eight of Jury Duty covering the trial of Alex Murdoch for the murders of his wife and son. You can find Tony Ortega's writing and sign up for his email list at tonyortega.substack.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at tonyortega94. Also, if you'd like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you.
You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholas. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.